0: This week I read that the best golfer who ever lived his name was Jack Nicklaus, not Tiger Woods. Jack Nicklaus, he won 73 different PGA Tour events in his career. What made him the best was how he performed in the majors. Those are the big ones. US Open, British Open, Masters. Nicklaus won a staggering 18 different big tournaments. No one, not even Tiger Woods has eclipsed that mark. Now, For two decades, Nicholas was the best golfer on the planet. Maybe the best golfer in the history of golf. And every year before the season started, he would do exactly the same thing. He would go back home, visit his first golf coach, and say, Coach, teach me how to golf. Coach, teach me the game of golf. And his coach, which was named Jack Grout, would proceed to review stance, grip, and swing. Things that Nicholas clearly knew. But each year, he would review the basics. The best become the best because they master the basics, the fundamentals. Today, we receive a lesson. We receive a lesson in the fundamentals of Christianity. Today, we might as well have come to Paul and say, Paul, teach me to be a Christian. We review the basics. Now, what do we hear in instructions on how to be a Christian? It's not instructions on how to change the world. It's not directions on spiritual warfare. It's not the high and lofty mysteries of the faith, but we review the basics. The lesson for us today on how to be a Christian starts at home teach me to be a Christian. The answer starts at home. Today we're going to learn again how to be a Christian, how to follow Jesus with those closest to us. The new life we share as Christians in Christ must be expressed in our homes to our families. It is easy to assume that because we believe Jesus is the Lord of the universe and the Lord of salvation And our Lord and the creator Lord over all things. We can believe all those things and yet not submit to his lordship and authority in our homes. We can't do that. We must learn to be Christians. We must be a people fixed on Jesus. And that fixation with Jesus be something that makes an impact in our homes. Jesus has authority over all things by his power all things hold together, and yet he cares about what happens in your kitchen. Each night he calls the stars out by name, one by one, and yet he cares about how you speak to your spouse. All things were created for him and by him and through him, and yet he is concerned with how you treat your kids. He is before all things, and yet he cares that you put, before, you put others before all your opinions and preferences. In him, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And yet, he observes the most mundane, ordinary, normal moments in your life. If we were to have one idea this morning, it would be this. Live submitted to your master, Jesus. Live submitted to your master everywhere, but especially at home. Live submitted to your master everywhere, but especially at home. At home. I'm going to begin reading. In Colossians chapter 3. And I'll go from verse 17. All the way down to chapter 4. Verse 1. And whatever you do. In word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives. Submit to your husbands. As is fitting in the Lord. Husbands. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, I pray that you would help us this morning as we look into your word. We pray that you would help us to be a a people attentive, Lord. Help us to be people who don't just believe the right things but live in the right way, Lord. I pray for any here who are not followers of you and are going to hear this and it's going to sound strange, Lord. I pray that you would pique their interest. I pray that you would help them to want to ask questions about What a Christian family ought to look like, Lord. And I pray that we would be a church that is full of examples of love and care and servanthood in the home. I pray that we would be a people who are Christians submitted to Jesus everywhere, but especially at home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've got three points, and I'll just tell you right at the beginning. We're going to spend most of the time on the first point, so fret not. I will not have three super long points. The first point is marriage. I get, that, get the, this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Now, we, re, we see that husbands and wives are both addressed. We need to see this in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I'll admit straight away that the word submit grates on our 21st century ears and sounds completely antiquated. But it's right here in the Bible. Wives, submit. Wives, submit to your husbands. The whole concept of submission is as appealing in our culture as nails being dragged down a chalkboard. Some say that the direction in verse 18 applies only in Paul's culture and not today, and we can safely ignore it. Others say that women weren't, in, weren't educated enough back then, and therefore we can ignore it. Others say this kind of talk will lead to spousal abu- abuse. None of these solutions are satisfying because what we do is we look at the scriptures and ask them to speak. We don't take meaning and inject them into the scriptures. So what do we need to do? If we're going to be offended by the idea and the concept of submission, let's at first, let's at first understand what it means so that we can be offended not by anything I say, but by the word of God. And from time to time, we should be offended by God's word. So one of the ways that I find helpful to describe what submission is is by first telling us, first thinking about what it isn't. Submission isn't. Submission is not, does not mean that wives are less valuable than their husbands. Wives are not less valuable. We've seen in Colossians a steady rhythm and drumbeat of you are one in Christ. You are unified in Him. Being a leader is not inherently more valuable or important than those who follow, especially in the realm of marriage. Your calling to submit does not mean that you are somehow lacking in personhood. Because we are the same in Christ, that does not mean that all distinctions are obliterated. We are different, though we are one in Christ. Think about this. The thing that differentiated Jesus from God the Father, one of the things, is that God the Father had authority and sent His Son to live and die and rise again. Jesus submitted to the will of God. He says this in John chapter 5, verse 26. For the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. We see the authority. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Clearly we see God is the one in authority, and Jesus is the one submitting to him. And never have I ever thought, wow, I used to have a really high opinion of Jesus, but then when I found out he submitted to the Father, disappointing. I've never had that thought. If you have, that's trouble. Jesus isn't less because he submitted to the will of the Father. Likewise... We must, ladies, you must consider submission in the light of Christ. It is a way in which you honor and reflect the role of the Trinity in this world. Submission does not mean you're less of a person. Submission does also not mean you're subject to every man. You are not subject to every man. We're talking about husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Be subject to your own husband, not other people's husbands. Not other people's, not other men. Not even your father, but that's a different message. Submission is not to every Christian man. Submission is also not the end of independent thinking. That is not what it is. As a wife, you're not called to be your husband's yes woman. Whatever ideas he comes up with, you bat your eyelashes and say, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. No, submission, is. that's not what it looks like. You're a helpmate, not a helpless mate. This is gonna mean that you're not always going to agree with your husband, and that is the way it should be. If you always agree with your husband, you are not properly submitting. As a wife, you're called to share everything with your husband. All your thoughts, all your hopes, all your dreams, all your ideas. You should not wait for your husband to come up with all the topics and all the ideas and all the direction. An example from our marriage, we've adopted four kids, my wife and I. They're getting older now. We love them dearly, despite what I said at the beginning. Um, and when we had three, our first three, three kids that we adopted were all boys, and I was thrilled. I had a Cub Scout pack. I wasn't into curling, but we had a whole curling team. And so I'm thinking, hey, we're good, and we're just about out of diapers. And my wife said, I think we should pray to see if the Lord would have a little girl for us. And I said, I don't think so. (laughs) I'm good. I am done going to Costco buying diapers. And she said, no, no, I, I I think the Lord might have something else, have a little girl for us. And I said, no, I don't think so. This was kind of how it went ongoing and over and over. And then she said, have you prayed about that? And I was like, no. Why did you bring Jesus into this? And then she said, have you talked to anyone else? And so then I was convicted and I prayed and I thought, okay, all right, she's got a point. And so I prayed and said, Lord, if you open a door, I am happy. I am open. So I was open at first. And then the Lord opened a door to have our first and only daughter. And uh, I am so grateful to this day that my wife pressed me. Um, my daughter, who's about to turn 10, has been a delight to our home. And since none of the boys are in here, I can tell you she's my favorite. <laughs> Submission does not mean that you don't, you don't think for yourself. In fact, if my wife didn't, we wouldn't have our, the family we have today. Submission does also not mean that wives are not as capable as their husbands. That's not true. It's not a statement on women's potential or intelligence. It's just a different role. It's not a statement on capability or capacity, but a different calling and a different role. Submission does also not mean that your relationship with God flows through your husband. He is not your advocate. He is not your high priest. Ladies, before you're a wife, you're a Christian. Your identity does not come from your husband. It must not come from your husband. Your husband can be a blessing, but you are a Christian in Christ. Yes, he's to wash you with the word, but Jesus lives and di- lived and died and rose and prays for you as a believer. You are a disciple before you are a wife. And you owe it to yourself and your husband and your kids and your family to take seriously your relationship with Jesus. You are heirs together with him. Submission does also not mean that you follow your husband into sin. Being subject to him does not mean you do what's wrong. Sin is always wrong. It is never an excuse. You don't, you don't follow him into sin. Now, what if he doesn't listen to you? That's what the church is for. That's what Christian friends are for. You say, you need to go talk to him. You need to go talk to him. And if you won't, you get other people forcibly into the conversation. This is why you need other people. This is why marriages that don't, that marriages that are not connected to a community, a local church community get in trouble. We need each other. Submission does not mean you follow your husband into sin. Submission is also not a license to be taken advantage of. Submission must not. Biblical submission is not a license to take advantage. It, we must not, we do not want, any sort of abuse by husbands to wives in the name of submission. If that happens, that is wrong, always. And one of the jobs as a church, one of the the jobs as Christians is to watch out to protect women who are taken advantage of by their husbands. That has nothing to do with biblical submission. And if you're a wife trapped and struggling, you need to speak up. We want to help. We want to keep you safe. Submission is not a license to be taken advantage of. Also, submission is not about fitting a certain mold or style. You don't have to let go of your personality or become someone else. Biblical person, biblical submission does not change your personhood. Rightly understood, it enhances your strengths and helps your weaknesses. There's not some kind of unwritten rule book about how a a, a home should go, who should do what in every regard. I'll give you an example. When we first got married, I thought, I'm the man, I do the finances. That lasted for 10 minutes because I am horrible at that stuff. And my wife, she literally would jump up and down with joy when the bank state would, would come in and she'd go, yes, we get to reconcile. I've never had that thought. I've never said those words except just now. And I will never say those words. And so I recognize, man, she should do the finances. Now, I should be involved. I should be excited about this. I should should support her and help her. And so in the way that we work as a couple, she's the one that does the finances, and I'm involved. And it has helped our marriage immensely. She's also the one who negotiates. She's the one, when we, (laughs) I mean, she's, well, I'll tell you this. I get coupons from her, and she'll try to use this, and it's like, dated from 2007. I'm like, I'm not using that. And she goes, just ask. Okay, okay, sweetie. Um, I'm also not, I'm not, I'm not allowed to go and negotiate from Craigslist or anything like that because I will pay full price. I'll just be like, man, you should have seen their kids. I gave them an extra $5. (laughs) Tiff's like, I can't send you anywhere. And actually recently, recently, uh, we had to purchase a used car, a different car, which is difficult enough. And so we talked about what we're looking for. She went alone to the place, and she negotiated the purchase. And she came back, and she go, yeah, you totally would have folded. <laughs> because you're a softie. And I'm like, hmm. and she was right. And so I know in our family, when it comes to purchasing cars, we talk about it. We interact over it. And she can go and negotiate. And I don't think, man, you know, I wish I could go down and sort of. No, I'm like, praise God that I was able to, that the Lord has blessed me with a wife who can do that. Um, it's, a, it's a blessing. And the point is, every couple needs to find out what works for your family. There's not a mold or a way. Submission is not waiting for your husband to come up with every idea. It's not, that's not what it looks like. Servant leadership is never unilateral. And godly submission is never silent. Your husband needs you, and I can guarantee he needs you more than he thinks he needs you. You are a team. You are a team, and you need each other. We've talked about all these things that submission is not, but what is it? We haven't defined it. This is in the context of marriage, not at work, not in government, not outside the home, but in marriage. Submission is the wife's inclination to lovingly follow and support her husband's leadership. That's what Paul is telling here. And notice the, the, the boundaries here in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The submission is to the husband, but ultimately to God. Your, your submission is first to Jesus. So when we say, what does it look like to be a Christian, teach me to be a Christian, Live as a Christian everywhere, but especially at home. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Very simply, men, husbands, love your wife. That is your job. Love your wife. You're not called to demand respect. You're not called to demand submission. You're not called to make sure she's She is thinking of you in all the right ways. You're called to love your wife. Now, the fact that we can be commanded to love our wives shows that love is not a feeling, but a choice. It always is. It always is. See, husbands, our authority in the home must feel like sacrifice and love. The primary thing that our wives must be aware of is that we love and support her no matter what. This is going to mean that we give ourselves up, give up time. We're going to give up preferences. We're going to give up interests. We're going to look to serve her. We're going to build her up with our words and not tear her down in front of kids and other people. Almost, if I talked to any husband in this room, he would say, I would take a bullet for my wife. But this passage is calling us to do something much harder. It's calling us to die every day for our wives. It would be easy to take a bullet. It's very difficult. Very difficult. To lay aside a strong preference to serve and to make sure your wife knows she is the priority. That's another kind of death. But that's the kind of death we're called to. I once heard a wife, what, is your, "What does your wife think about you, man? Does she know? Well, I don't know anything, but I know he loves me." Is that the pattern of your words? Once I heard someone speaking, a, a wife of a living with a harsh husband said, "I'm more aware that he wants me to turn off the air conditioner than I know in the car than I know he, that he loves me." That ought not to be. We ought to be men who love our wives. What does it look like to, to, to be a Christian? Being a Christian starts at home. Teach me to be a Christian. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh. Do not be harsh. We have no right as believers to be harsh with anyone, much less men, our wives. We must not be harsh. We must not be. We must be people who are kind to our wives and gracious to our wives, and loving. No husband has the right to be harsh. Someone I know who has been very brave and courageous told me what it was like to be married to a harsh man. Now, this person is safe now, but for years lived with a harsh man, and she said, my husband was a harsh man. Maybe you met him. He's probably the guy who asked you how you were doing and asked how he could pray for you. Not just how he could pray for you. He would pray for you right then and there. When you asked about his family, he told you he had a great wife. He was blessed. Sounds harsh, right? Not yet. He was also the guy who would tell me that he loved me almost every day when he left for work. He brought me flowers and candy and cards on all the appropriate occasions. But behind the public mask and the surface hallmark checklist of what makes a good husband lived a harsh man. He disregarded my opinions. He disregarded my needs and desires. He disdained my emotions. I wasn't allowed to disagree. I wasn't allowed to cry. I wasn't allowed to raise grievances. I wasn't allowed to be critical about anything that he did. Everything else came first in his life. Sports, work, video games, entertainment, sleep. News, television, our dogs, money. I came behind all of these things. Everything that I did was judged and came back lacking. And I learned to carry the weight of never being good enough. When God convicted me of something, I asked for forgiveness. Or when I asked forgiveness for something, my words were met with silence. If I did break the unspoken rule of raising a grievance, my words were interrupted and immediately turned into accusations against me. If I said the way he was talking to me hurt and his tone was unkind, I was told that it was my problem and that wasn't how he meant it. When I cried, my tears were met with zero empathy, no matter the depth of the trial that I was walking through, or worse, they were met with anger. But perhaps the worst part of his harshness was the loneliness and isolation he fostered in our relationship. He arrived home late from work almost every day. He filled his time with television, internet, biking, reading, walking, and video games. He stayed up very late into the night doing these things while I cried myself to sleep, just wanting connection. just wanted acceptance. I just wanted to be loved. I've never been more lonely than when I was married to a harsh man. Men, we have no right to be harsh. We must be strong enough to love. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You live submitted to Jesus, husbands. You live as Christians, husbands, as you love your wife in the home. You notice there are no mundane moments in the Christian life. The smallest things that no one else sees, the Lord is watching. He's directing us. He's directing us on how to be married. Women submit husband's' love. Secondly, parenting. We see this in Colossians chapter three verses 20 through 21. We have parent, children and parents fathers or children obey your parents in verse 20 in everything for this pleases the lord fathers this could also be rendered parents and probably should do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged now i'm going to spend most of my time on chapter 21 children obey your parents in the lord notice the motive is not just because the parents say so but because this pleases the lord this pleases the lord parents do not provoke your children. Provocation can come in many forms. We are par- all of us as parents would do anything for our kids. We want them to be a success. We want them to avoid mistakes. We want the best for them. We want better than we had. We want them to be happy. And most of all, we want them to follow Jesus. Yet, we can provoke them. Now, provocation from parents can come from many stages, in many stages of our kids' lives. But the most common age of provocation is adolescent and teenagehood. Those years are the years that provocation is much, much more tempting. Right now, my wife and I are in the throes of teenageness at our house. And wow, that was hard. It's, it's hard it's way harder than I thought. And I am learning a ton about how not to provoke. A ton. Because here's my temptation. My temptation is, well, I'll give you a story. Here's, here's what happened. A few weeks ago, my old, one of my kids, I, said, I had a request of him. I asked him one day. I gave him tons of time. Hey, listen, this is what I want you to do tomorrow. And so tomorrow dawns and dawns and dawns. And it's 1 p.m. And then... Man, he's up and at at 1 p.m. Rolls out of bed and I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I need to, because my temptation is, what in the world? My temptation is to go, where have you been? What are you doing? Do you know how good you have it? What are you thinking? Why can't you just listen? What in the world is happening in your brain? Am I just talking to myself or what? Now, some of those questions need to be asked, but not in that moment. Provocation often, is, avoiding provocation is often knowing the time to ask those questions. And so he rolls out into the kitchen and I'm sitting there with my wife and I said, Sweetie, I need you to understand something. It's very hard for me not to just be a machine gun question person right now and raise my voice. I need to tell someone so you know it. So let's do a fist bump here and I'm going to be calm. And It worked. I waited. It was so hard. I waited to have the conversation. I chose not to say anything in that moment. Why? Because I've provoked him many times by having the first thing that he hears from me to be criticism or a lecture or a problem. Now, I had the conversation with him about what he didn't do, but I had it two days later. I want to make sure that I don't provoke my kids. That doesn't mean that I'm weak or that I won't confront them. It means that I pick the time. And we have to do this as parents to pick the right time to talk to them. But always, it is always time to assure our kids that we love them and that we want the best for them and that we want to encourage them. Our kids are not going to remember the lectures we gave but they will remember if we love them. I've never seen a Hallmark card that says, thank you for the lecture. I've never talked to a kid that said, you know, I was really having a hard time. And then my dad just had this inspired lecture in the living room one time. And it just changed everything. I mean, it changed everything. He even said, am I talking to myself? And you know, I realized he was. No, that is never going to happen. That is never going to happen. What's going to happen is your kids, will listen, your kids are going to listen and not be provoked if they're more aware of your love than all the things that they're doing wrong. And man, that's hard when they're teenagers and adolescents. Because they do a lot of things wrong. <laughs> but we don't want them to be embittered and discouraged. We don't want them, we want them to think, listen, if I don't know anything else, I know my parents love me. That's the heart behind, what, behind not provoking your kids. Teach me to be a Christian, Paul says. Here's what it looks like in your marriage. Here's what it looks like at home. Lastly, we have something that seems completely unrelatable. Here's what it looks like if you're a slave. Now, verse 22, it says, bond servants. This, the ESV, the English Standard Version, chose to use the word bondservant. They ought to have used the word slave, not servant, slave. Part of the reason they translated the word this way is because of the horrendous history of slavery in our country. S- slavery is a terrible blight on our history. And so they translated it bondservant. Now, one thing we, a couple things we must recognize here is that this passage does not in any way, shape, or form endorse slavery. It is wrong for a person to own another person. But what Paul is doing is speaking to the household reality in that day and age. And there's a massive difference between marriage and parenting on the one hand and slavery on the other. Marriage and parenting, go on. Slavery, no. So as we think about what his direction is here, what we ought to see is recognize that most of us, many of us in this room, are employed. And the directions to slaves map on to directions to those who are employed. I want you to see in verse 22, "...obey in everything those who are your earthly masters or employers." Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Praise the Lord, none of us in this room are slaves, but most many of us are employed and have bosses. And some of those bosses are unscrupulous, some of those bosses are unfair. Some of those bosses take credit for the work you do. Some of those bosses say one thing and do another what Paul wants the slaves to see of that day and us to see in this day is something much bigger than what they do on a daily basis. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You see, your employment, what you do, no matter what it is, is for the Lord. If you're a barista, it's for the Lord. If you're an engineer, for the Lord. If you clean homes, for the Lord. If you have your first job at In-N-Out, for the Lord. And even more, notice verse, 20, verse 23 again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see what Paul does? He takes everyone and says, you know what? Some of you in, some of you think you're not slaves, but all of us as believers in Jesus are slaves to Jesus. We are all serving him. Notice he puts everyone in the category of slave. You are serving the Lord Jesus. And that's how we must think about it as christians how ought to ought we to be a christian we should be christians in our home in our marriages with our parenting but we also must understand that we are bought with the price that jesus christ has purchased us by his blood and we exist at his good pleasure we we live to please him we live to make much of him And so whatever we do, and sometimes we might think, well, the only way I can please the Lord is if I was in some kind of full-time vocational ministry. That is false. Verse 23 tells us, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now think about that. That means that we are in ministry wherever we go. No matter what we do, no matter where we go, we as slaves to Jesus are are in ministry serving the Lord. And so we want to serve the Lord at our employment to the best of our ability, not just doing a good job when people are watching, not just doing a good job to what, when, 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 everybody's, when, when reviews are coming up, but doing a good job knowing that we serve the Lord. We do this not just to please people or to have eye service. We recognize we, as we work, are serving the Lord. And he watches. Notice what he's going to do. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. He is watching to bless you. And you will receive an inheritance from him beyond what any 401k can deliver. You might have been overlooked for promotion. He sees. You might, have been, you might, are, you might be stuck in a job you hate. He knows. You might have an unscrupulous boss. He sees. You might be toiling away and nobody seems to care. He does. We need to recognize here that there are no moments in our life where the lordship and authority of Jesus is not active. We as Christians, we must be people who reflect the lordship and authority of Christ in our marriages, in our parenting, and at work. And submitting to Jesus, that's hard. That's hard. But what's freeing is to realize There are no unimportant moments for us. There's never a day that means nothing. We must follow Him. We must submit to Jesus. If you're an employer, treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Don't have time to be fair with that. But we must be a people who submit ourselves to Jesus in everything. Just as Jack Nicholas went and said, teach me to be a Christian, or teach me to be a golfer, teach me the game of golf, we ask, teach me to be a Christian. And we're directed this way. The authority of Christ must be expressed in our daily lives, at home, with our wives and husbands, with our kids, and at work. May we be a people fixed on Jesus so that everybody can tell. It's in your name. And, and let's pray as we go to the Lord. Just ask for help. Lord, I do pray that you would... There's going to be a lot of us in this room that are going to feel like, oh, I could do such a better... I could do so, better, so much better. I fall so short, Lord. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to recognize that we all fail and none of us are where we ought to be. But, Lord, we serve a Savior who forgives our every sin. And so I pray that instead of, instead of us hardening our hearts and turning away, instead of saying, well, I would be okay if the people around me were better, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who humble ourselves and say, Lord, forgive me, and Lord, help me. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that have husbands that love their wives and are kind and gentle. that Wives, that, wives that, that intelligently follow their husbands and children that obey and parents who don't provoke their children and employees that honor you in every moment of the day. Lord, we want that to be what the, the reflection of us as a people because we are fixed on you. We don't want to just know about you, Jesus. We want to know you. And we want you to impact and inform every second of our day. Help us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are so gracious and kind. And that you extend forgiveness. We need it. In your name, Jesus, the one we serve, that we give thanks and we pray. Amen.